And welcome back to another episode of the Silver Screen Roll podcast. Today, we are going to take a brief break from the current Lakers because uh, thanks to the Clippers choking yesterday, they're on a little bit of a vacation until Friday. So while we wait to figure out who they're going to be playing in the Western Conference Finals, it is my pleasure to go back in time a little bit and be joined by Jeff Perlman, a soon-to-be 10-time New York Times bestselling author, the writer of the upcoming book, Three Ring Circus, Kobe Shaq, and the Crazy Years of the Lakers Dynasty, the host of the Two Writers Slinging Yang podcast, someone you've likely read at ESPN, Bleacher Report, Sports Illustrated, The Athletic, or a ton of other places, uh, and a man who was kind enough to jump on here with me despite me asking him to come and speak at one of my Society of Professional Journalist meetings at Cal State Fullerton, and then me completely forgetting to follow up because I got overwhelmed with the demands of the semester and my job and wedding planning and just completely ghosting him. So, Jeff, I appreciate you uh, being willing to overlook that and uh, jump on here with you, here with me today. How's it going? I'm deeply wounded still. I mean, because <laughs> first of all, you never paid me the ten thousand dollar cancellation fee, which I well, thought. no, technically I never signed that. So I think we're I think we're going to be okay. And then. But I, I do like you build me. This is only my ninth book. I just want to say it's not my tenth book. So I don't want to build it. You're building me up and make me sound better than I am. So I don't. Well, want to- no. I thought I read your bio. I did my research for this. It said nine-time New York Times best-selling author. I thought. I think it's I may have uh, author of nine books or something. I'm oh, okay. I'm bad. well. Yeah. All right. No, I'm happy to take it. Whatever you want. Either to way, it. I was trying to get you one ahead because I am confident after reading the. Like, I, I have read not the entire book. I'm not going to lie to you because it is hard to read a book while covering a playoff run. Um, I but I have read almost all of the book. It is incredible. I remember thinking, like, when you sent it to me, I was like, I don't know how much time I'm honestly going to have to read this. Like, I wanted to, but I was like, with everything else going on, and then I sat down and I started reading it and literally didn't stop for like two hours and then like spent probably my entire honeymoon reading it almost the entire honeymoon um and I'm still married i it's kind of amazing uh you know luckily she likes to sleep in a lot so we i was able to make it work but um the book is like i, I i'm not trying to overhype this like just because you're coming on here it is honestly like one of the best sports books that i've ever read about a basketball especially about like a basketball team uh it's really great um i, I am curious though like what led you to this specific team and writing about it now because obviously you know you literally wrote the book on the showtime lakers but like what about like aside from the obvious about like this era of Lakers basketball kind of drew you back into this world? Well, I think I always, um, I always thought sort of the magic book just because the Showtime book, just because of the nature of how that dynasty kind of ended. The book had a very abrupt ending. Not that that's bad. It's just the ending was magic has HIV and the press conference. It kind of ends. I mean, the ending to the era was abrupt. So yeah, yeah there's really like no other way to do it. Yeah. Yeah. There was no other way to do it, but I always thought it was interesting how there's basically like, all right, it ends. And then there's like, ba-bump, ba-bump, you know, uh, Sedale 3. And yeah. they draft Eddie Jones. And they draft Nick Van Exel. And then you're kind of right back in it. And I just yeah. think this era, that Shaq, Kobe, Phil, Dale Harris, a little Van Exel, a little Eddie Jones, Eldon Kent, all these guys. It was just a really dynamic period to write about. Um, and also, when you're when you're trying to get a book deal and you're thinking about what should the, the next book be, a question you always get from editors and from agents is um, – who would this book hang on? Like, who's a character? You know, it's one yeah. of the flaw. A lot of like books that you pitch, they say, "Yeah, but who's who's that going to hang on?" And here, you have Shaq, you have Kobe, you have Phil. You have three grade A characters. Yeah, that the narrative revolves around. So I just thought it was a really good, fresh kind of topic for a book. 
Yeah, and like I, I mean, not just like the character because the ki- obviously all of those guys are single name people. Like you didn't say their last names there. They're like everybody knows exactly who you're talking about. Even Phil, like when you just say that name in an NBA context, people know exactly who that is. Sure. But it's not just that they're interesting; it's the clash between them. And like I think the thing that I appreciated the most about this book is that it doesn't like kind of gloss over that stuff. I think that there's been a tendency in like the aftermath of it, and some of this comes from like Kobe and Shaq themselves doing damage control over like the intervening years while they were both playing um, and then like into retirement for both of them saying, oh, it wasn't that bad. Like we, you know, it was just business stuff, whatever. Like this does not like paint that type of picture. It is very much the real of like what was actually going on within the team. And like, you know, I just like, I appreciated that approach to it. And just like, so it's the clash between them, I think as much as anything that like really sells this and like makes it a more interesting story than it would be even just aside from those three characters. Well, it's interesting because it was hard to get away from it. Like when I write books, I really love the side characters. Like yeah. I love Rick Fox or I love J.R. Ryder. I love Mike Penberthy or Dennis Rodman. The, the J.R. Ryder section was genuinely hilarious. Just the rundown of all the so different fun. times he was late to practice, his excuses. Like it was incredible. He was the best. He's so yeah. fun. And um, I love those. Like I love those stories. And I love sitting down with Rick Fox at a Starbucks or Samaki Walker at a coffee. Like I love that stuff. I've never written a book where there's this like, uh, it's like a planet drawing people in. And you can't escape that planetary, the the gravitational pull. And it all kept coming back to the Shaq-Kobe relationship. Like it just kept coming back to it. No matter who you're talking to, whether it's J.R. Ryder or whether it's Penberthy or Fox, or it always just comes back to it because it was such a, it just really controlled the narrative and controlled the locker room. And you look at the guys they brought in under Phil in particular, where whether it's Rick Fox or Robert Ory or Brian Shaw or when Derek Harper came or whoever. So much of that was actually about this relationship between Shaq and Kobe and having guys in the locker room who, A, wouldn't be affected by it negatively, and B, who could kind of control it and try to steer it. So that was one of the interesting things to me, too, was like how many different guys were basically listed with an aside, like brought in to help teach Kobe to like get along with his teammates or brought in because they got along with Shaq to try and like help, you know, bridge the gap between the two or which one was on which side of like different like arguments and stuff. And like it 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 was not just like a debate show drama thing. Like I think sometimes like, you know, these like debate shows or podcasts or whatever were like, oh, can so and so and so and so coexist? Like this was an actual question within the team of whether or not these guys could coexist with the way that it got. I just think one thing people maybe have missed, some people have missed, is sort of the root of it all, right? Which is, I mean, it's really fascinating if you think about it. Kobe Bryant comes along and he's a kid who was raised in Italy and then in the suburbs of Philly. And anyone who says he's from Philly doesn't know Philly. He's not from Philly. He's from the suburbs, the leafy suburbs of Philly. And he enters this NBA and it's the NBA at a really interesting time because it's really the Allen Iverson NBA. It's hip hop and cornrows tats and slam magazine and baggy clothes and it's a really fun expressive time for the nba and it's stefan marbury and it's kevin garnett but kobe didn't fit that mood at all he just wasn't that guy yeah but it was this awkward ongoing effort to be that guy i actually some of my best friends are slam magazine guys from the 90s my roommate was the editor of slam magazine russ banks and and they would put kobe on the cover of slam and what Slam used to do is have guys kind of peer out from the cover and try to look tough. And 
I used to have tons of my dad were, worked for the company that published Slam, and I used to he used to bring me home those covers like all the time, and like it, I had a whole briefcase just full of like Slam magazines growing up. So that's they were the best really covers, cool. and they yeah. would have posters inside the Slam ups. Yeah, but it wasn't authentic for Kobe. Like it just wasn't, and there was this this need for him inside to be that guy, but he wasn't that guy. And meanwhile, you have Shaq, who's just this larger than life presence, and he's jovial and he wants to be the leader and he just wants people to love him and he wants to love him back but kobe doesn't want that kobe's trying to be hard and kobe's trying to be tough and win at all costs and cutthroat and it just throughout their years together it just was this really tough thing that it was like two magnets against each other and it, it was just a fascinating dynamic i thought yeah, no, it's just, it's truly like just, I think two guys coming together at exactly the wrong, like, well, the wrong and the right time, right. because it was the right time because their talent like was able to overcome it, but it was exactly the wrong time for both. Like Kobe wanted to establish himself and wanted to kind of be his own guy where Shaq like already was that guy and didn't want to like, kind of like necessarily have to like babysit this kid or get him to take good shots or run good offense for the team and stuff like, like it, it's just honestly like it, it, the whole, one of the things that I just kept wondering throughout reading the book is like if the Lakers had gotten Shaq and they had traded for Kobe like you know this is just a different timeline or something where Kobe's born earlier and they had traded for Kobe like five years into his career like team them up at some point like you know a little bit further off in the future when Kobe started to grow may probably further than five years um but like maybe 10 years into his career like how would they have meshed like if they had acquired Shaq or something instead of Gasol and they had never come together before that like at that point in Kobe's career could it have worked? Like, I think, I think there's a chance it could have, but at the same time, I still don't know because Kobe, even when he was winning the next round of titles, like he very clearly wanted to be seen as that guy. Like even so, like they had, he clearly had help, but it was like, there was no doubt about it. Like 100%, he was the established superstar and like the center of that team. And I don't know if it ever could have worked totally personality wise, even though it seemed like Shaq really wanted it to more so than Kobe did. I would say definitely. Yes. Shaq wanted this role. Kobe didn't want to play, didn't want to do it. Like Kobe, yeah. Shaq really, really wanted it to have like a Batman and Robin thing or a big brother, little brother. Kobe had no interest in that whatsoever. And the, the thing that's really, I was just thinking when you were saying this, the lazy narrative in a way is, you know, but their talents really meshed together. I don't know if that's really true. I just think they were both great. Like they yeah, were. Yeah, I think uh, maybe I misphrased that. I think it's more of just they were so good that it right. almost didn't matter. Like that they didn't mesh. Per like because even like one of the things I was writing about this today because like I was actually writing about Shaq and Kobe in the context of Anthony Davis and uh, LeBron James for later this week. Just com like com kind of comparing the two duos and like what they say about like the states of the NBA that they existed in. And like one of the things that I was thinking about was like even on that famous play, like probably the most famous play, like that where. Shaq and Kobe came together to make a play the lob in the Western Conference Finals in 2000 that essentially cemented that ring because the Pacers were never going to beat them um Kobe you know like it, that play starts because Kobe is trying to do his MJ thing he's trying to break down Scottie Pippen and like show that he is the guy and really only makes the pass because the entire Blazers defense collapses in on him and Shaq is wide open rolling right. to the basket and Kobe throws him a perfect lob to his credit he made the right play like there were times during that year probably where he would have just shot it anyway 
Like, but Shaq catches the lob. Kobe almost reaches out for like a high five and Shaq points up to the rafters and runs directly past him back to the teammates he actually liked. And I thought that it was kind of an interesting distillation of like that relationship just in one basketball play where like, yeah, they could come together, but it still wasn't like, it wasn't because they were seeking each other out or something like that. Right. People try making it. Like, if you want to really talk about two talents meshing, Stockton Malone is a perfect example. Yeah. The pick and roll, the pick and roll, the pick and roll. Two guys who did this thing really well and did it together cohesively. Maybe you could say Jordan Pippen in a way. They fed off each other. Pippen understood his role. But Shaq and Kobe were two guys who wanted to be superstars and wanted to be alphas. And they just, it just so happens they were two of the five best players on the planet playing on the same team, surrounded by the perfect role players. So, yeah, I just, I agree with you. I think it was two really talented guys. But I think if it was Shaq and Vince Carter, it probably would have worked pretty well, too. Or if it was Kobe and another competent, you know, really good big man, it probably would have worked. They just had that much talent. Yeah, no, they they were really, really special. And like, you know, again, the book gets into all of that. I want to talk about a couple more things and get more, like dive more deeply into this. But first, I want to pay a couple bills really quickly. All right, so Jeff, uh, the one of the thing we we actually went a different direction than I was planning to, but that's fine because it was good. But like, I actually did want to ask you, like, wh- when did you start working on this? Like, when did the process of putting this book together start? So it was probably about two and a half years ago now, and um, it was way before Kobe's passing. Obviously, I just finished a book about the USFL that came out, and um, I just I was looking for a new topic. And then, like, like, what do you think people are going to get from it? Like, what did you learn during the process of this that comes through in the book? Like, that you people pro- maybe don't know or haven't heard before, or like, like, what angles do you think that you got of this, or knowledge that you got from it that you just had no idea about? Oh man, I mean, for me, construct- I, I mean, I'm sure it's a lot, but like, yeah. just you know, maybe the biggest ones. I mean, I love. I'll tell you this, which I just freaking love. The difference between. Kobe Bryant playing for the Los Angeles Lakers and Kobe Bryant playing for the New Jersey Nets is entirely John Calipari, which I love. Like John Calipari is the single reason Kobe Bryant was not a New Jersey Net is at the very, very last minute of the day of the 1996 draft, the Nets general manager, John Nash, is committed. We will take Kobe Bryant. He's talked to Kobe's parents. We are taking your son. And at the last minute, John Calipari starts getting cold feet. He gets a call saying Kobe won't sign with the Nets. John Nash is like, listen, man, they're just bluffing. They're going to, he's not, he's 18 years, 17 years old. He's not. They threatened he was going to play in Italy or something like that. Right. Yeah. Like it was some like completely like no one would ever do it in a million years. No, Like it was ludicrous. And, um, but Calipari, it was his first year. He was a young guy. He had final personnel say with the Nets. And he's like, (laughs) If Kerry Kittles is available, we're taking Kerry Kittles. Otherwise, we're taking Kobe. So the Nets end up with a very, you know. Which is just like, in retrospect, what an amazing quote to have come out of that room. Like, like just even those guys being in the same sentence is incredible. And much less like having Kittles over Kobe. It's crazy. And it's not, Kittles had a very nice NBA career. It's not like yeah. they drafted. No, he was fine. Yeah, he was totally fine. But it's, it's insane. And then also, I mean, the power of a single poll in the Orlando Sentinel, is Shaquille O'Neal worth the money? And this poll, and you would think, a lot of times I always think, oh, these things are overblown, or this is overblown, because you would hear about this poll, this newspaper yeah. poll, and it crushed him. 
crush shack or like no and that comes through too like it it, like this was not just some like you know oh let's pile on the local media after the guy leaves or whatever like this genuinely offended him and this is like people got to remember this is a time before social media like and like you know i think even really the internet like like writing being a huge thing so like the newspaper was what everyone read like all these guys probably read that that was social media and so he probably picked up this poll and like saw this stuff like how could you not be offended yeah, he was really hurt by that. And that played a huge role. And also, again, like this, you want to talk about the savvy of of, uh, of Jerry West. I mean, the trade that doesn't get discussed enough, and I love the little minutia things. They basically, they don't have the money to pay Shaq. And he makes this deal with Vancouver, whose general manager is Stu Jackson, where they give him George Lynch and Anthony Peeler for two second round picks. And Vancouver's really hemming and hawing. And uh, Dow Harris, who's the coach at the time, actually calls over there and he's like, look, we are giving you two guys who will be our sixth and eighth men who are very good NBA players. We just need to clear the space so we can get this guy. You are nowhere near competing, you in Vancouver. So make the deal. And that deal, which Dale Harris actually had a heavy hand in, um, freed everything up. It's one of the genius little deals of Jerry West's career. It's just freeing up money for Shaq. Yeah, no, that was, I mean, that, that's been detailed before, but like just the, just the saga of like going through every part of it almost minute by minute is crazy. Like that they were like, we don't think about it. Like we think about now, like these teams planning for this like years in advance, but it was a totally different world with like no max contracts. So these teams were truly bidding against each other. And like, basically like the Lakers ended up having to have a fire sale because they had to keep like going up on what they were going to offer Shaq. And it's just kind of like, it's wild to go through it minute by minute. It was just totally different NBA than it is today. Yeah. I just, I just, I love, like, I love Dennis Rodman's brief time with the Lakers. I love J.R. Ryder's time with the Lakers. I love Shaq um, taking Mark Madsen. Cause I wrote in the Showtime book, AC Green reports as a version to the Lakers. And he's just mocked and ridiculed by the other yeah. players. Well, Mark Madsen comes along, Mormon off of a mission, you know, uh, rookie. And Shaq basically decides, I'm going to take, not only am I going to take this guy under uh, my wing, I'm going to find him Mormon women. To get married. That was so funny just to hear Shaq, like just picturing Shaq, like asking flight attendants if they were Mormon to see if they would date Mark Madsen is like, like, honestly, just that story makes the book worth it. Yeah, it was really fun. There's just more than anything. It's just a really fun and kind of unique era, you know, and I said, really, it was it's fun. It's just it's a fun experience. Yeah. And so, like, I mean, one, I, I don't, again, I don't want to spoil the whole book, but like one of the things that I do think that we should like definitely touch on, and we kind of got into before, is like the way that it portrays like the young Kobe Bryant, who like, I think it's really important to remember is a distinctly different person from the Kobe Bryant that we kind of grew up or that, that we kind of got to know as he grew up, like, and like really as Lakers fans, like really grew to love over his later years. Um, like, so I just wanted to read like a couple little notes that I made, like, while I was reading this book because like my jaw was basically hitting the floor at various points. Like, so like we have, we have one story where Shaq, uh, he starts out asking Kobe to pass more. And Kobe says, I think verbatim, fuck that, get it off the rebound. If I miss bro, uh, we have Kobe during his rookie season asking Del Harris to run more post-ups for him instead of Shaq, because he is sure that he can score. And we have Shaq telling Kobe to grow the fuck up and pass the fucking ball. And Kobe replying, make some fucking free throws, which is like, this is not, again, like this is not the brotherly dynamic unless, you know, I mean, I guess depending on your relationship with your brother, um, this is not the brotherly dynamic that like, I think they tried to sell later on when they were like really trying to rehabilitate the image of that relationship and their partnership. And like, 
I mean, I think that this is obviously just, it's a lot different than that. And like, what do you think that you learned about like, not just that relationship, but like the way that Kobe was viewed on this team as a whole, is this like really kind of cocksure young player that like, what, like it was just fascinating because you don't hear about rookies now, just straight up not listening to veterans or talking back to them like that, or very rarely. And it's kind of crazy that this guy at 17, 18, 19 years old was just basically telling his teammates to F off when they tried to tell him to change stuff and like how just kind of almost in disbelief they were that he was doing it it's almost interesting it's almost it depends how you view it whether it's admirable or offensive you know like you could be you could look at kobe's behavior and think man that guy he was so confident that's amazing blah 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 but you could also look at it and say oh my god like what i feel is like it? it's a bit of both honestly like it, it's kind of an incredible achievement of his own like you know self-belief that he was that confident and ended up kind of being right but at yep. the same time like could the Lakers – like, I, th I think the question, could they have won more titles is, like, more trite. But, like, could that team have maybe gotten along a little bit better and, like, been a little bit more effective had he, like, tried to, you know, subjugate that and get along with people a little bit? There? This is just a very, like, kind of uh, – this is a very different point of Kobe's career than he got to later on when he was winning the rings with Powell. Well, I, I always thought, like, uh, if you want, like, the telling Kobe, young Kobe, it's – um Second summer league, so a sophomore, uh, sophomore, heading into his second year in the NBA, and he plays with the Lakers summer league team. And the Lakers have a guy on that team, Jimmy King, who was part of the Fab Five at Michigan. And Kobe, I mean, I heard this from a ton of guys from that summer league team. Kobe's goal was to destroy Jimmy King. He was just going to tear Jimmy King apart because he viewed Jimmy King as his obstacle, which is super weird because Jimmy King barely had an NBA career. He was a fourth member of the Fab Five, you know? Um, but he just wanted to destroy him. He wanted, you know, he viewed Jimmy King as his threat and he wanted to destroy him. And his whole career, again, like, I, I always think of it this. Here's, here's what I think is telling, really telling about Kobe. He has those four air balls against Utah his rookie year in the playoffs. Yeah. That would have destroyed 90 out of 100 NBA players. Uh, 90 out of 100 end up like Nick Anderson with Orlando, where they are remembered for that moment. You basically have the yips the rest of your career in late games. Of your career. Yeah. You are the catcher who can't throw back to the pitcher anymore. Like that is what Kobe Ryan was looking at. And at that age, on that stage, that level four, I searched and searched and searched. I really did trying to find any NBA player who ever had four air balls in a single game. <laughs> I couldn't really find it. So, but his resilience and that he was back in the gym the next day, shooting those same from those same spots. And then a connective tissue to that all it's 2004 He's going through the sexual assault trial. Um, he's coming. He's flying from Eagle, Colorado, where he spent all day, flying to L.A., maybe taking a 20-minute nap before the game and scoring 25, 30 points. Like, whether you liked him or hated him, whether you admired him or abhorred him, the resiliency and the ability to put a shield around yourself, I've never seen anything like it. Yeah, I'm not sure that, like, you know, for all the talk of, like, Michael Jordan's will and, like, all that, like, I'm not sure that we've ever seen, like, a more kind of, like, like isolated, closed-off, single-minded, like, and, like, pursuit of basketball NBA player than we have seen with, like, Kobe. Because even with, like, MJ, you got the stories of him being out late gambling, like, not always taking the best care of his body, you know, whatever it may be. Like, you know, like, Kobe from seven to, like, you know, 18, 19, 20 years old, you have stories in here of him, like, 
you know, his teammates trying to get him to go to clubs. I think there was one where like John Sally, I think it was like drove him to a club in Miami was excited. He's like, finally got Kobe to go out. He's going to bond with the team. This is going to be great. I think Kobe stays like what, like one hour or something. And then it's like, you got to drive me home. I have a 5 a.m. workout tomorrow. And so like John Sally has to like, you know, pack up, leave the club, uh, like take off. And it's just like, he just was like he was so determined that he was going to be a star and wasn't going to let like basically anything stand in his way of that. I like the, I like when he, uh, he runs into uh, Rick Fox and Robert Ori and Ori's nursing an alcoholic beverage. Yes. And it's like the day before a game and Kobe is just in disbelief. How can you be drinking before a game? And Robert Ori's like, man, okay, junior, you know, I'm 30 years old and I'm drinking a beer two days before a game. Yeah. That was just him. And it was the thing that I, I really, have thought about a lot is like, would I want my kids to approach something the way Kobe Bryant approach, approach basketball? And I think the answer is no, because I think, I just think Shaq had, Shaq didn't have the career Kobe had, but he probably enjoyed it a million times more. Oh and yeah. I think there's almost no question. Like none. And, and if you think about it, like Bryant resented the fact that Shaq spent his off seasons floating in a pool with a cigar, a hamburger and a drink. Right. Yeah, I think uh, the fat burger trips at 3 a.m., stuff right. like Yeah. But I just think, like, I maybe this is what I'm saying is sacrilege. I think that's what you're supposed to do. Like, you only live once. You are a basketball player making millions of dollars. You are supposed to enjoy your life. And I just – I think the way Shaq went through his career, even though, again, he doesn't go down on the rankings as great as Kobe, I'd probably rather have that sort of experience than Kobe had. Yeah, I I think I agree with you in in that sense. But I also think that like, for a lot of people, like that's not that easy. Like, you know, we talk like a lot, like, like, I know that like my company, they always like talk to us about work life balance and like, trying to make sure that you're actually taking time off, taking time away from the computer, not working, whatever, like, it's really hard, because I really want to be good at this. And I'm not comparing myself to Kobe, or saying that, like, you know, like, I'm not an NBA player. But like, if you're really, really driven and passionate about something, I think sometimes it is just really like, I don't think it's like a choice between like what would you do or whatever I think that's sometimes just internally how you're wired like I'm not sure that like if Kobe had wanted to he could have done that kind of stuff because even like during his last seasons like he wasn't playing for anything he was still spending like eight hours before games like getting taped up massage like you know everything that you could possibly do to your body just to get out there and play like 30 minutes like I just think like uh, like I just think that he was built that way I don't think that he could have done it another way I think they're just two different people in two different mindsets I agree with that. And I also think um, from a strictly work work effort standpoint, um, work ethic standpoint, there's never been anyone more admirable. Like if you, if you want an example of someone, I mean in sports, if you want an example of someone who just said, this is what I want to accomplish and I'm willing to do anything for it. Because we all hear people saying, I'm willing, it's almost a cliche, I'm willing to do anything for my dream. Really? Would you move to South Bend? Nah, I don't know about that. Would you blah, blah, blah? Would you, do, would you work 100 hours a week? I don't know if I do that. Like Kobe Bryant is actually the guy who said, this is what I want to do. And then he put everything he had into doing it. And I will say that is a very admirable, you know, work ethic and the, and the doggedness and the dedication. It was one of a kind. And it's definitely when I saw those people mourning him after his passing, I think what he represented to a lot of people was the idea that here's a dream. I want to accomplish that dream. 
And now here's what you have to do to, to do that. And he did no, it very well. No, I think that's ab- that, that's one of the things that I remember a lot of us like writing and talking about right after the passing as well. Like, I think genuinely, like he showed like the city of Los Angeles and like, you know, like the Lakers have this reputation as the Hollywood team, the glitzy, the glamour, whatever. Like, I think he actually showed like Los Angeles and like the Lakers fan base, like an example of how to work. And I think it influenced the way that a lot of kids like growing up like me thought about like what you have to do to be good at your career. Like, I think that it, influence like you know just a lot of people like and show them that like okay this is a guy that we can stand behind or get behind because like we know that he is never shortchanging us like even if he plays bad it's not because he's not get putting in like a hundred percent effort basically i think you're better off being half kobe half shack maybe that's oh i think i think so too like i, I wish i had a little bit more shack in me and like was yeah. able to you know really uh recover on company time and you know t- do all that stuff it's it's it's, it's tough sometimes i think um yeah. What what other characters, uh, aside from, you know, we talked about Kobe and Shaq and, you know, actually we haven't talked about Phil that much, but like, you know, I guess like him as well, but like what other characters like stood out to you in the course of like reporting this that maybe like you wouldn't, you've gotten into a couple of them, but was there anyone else that like just like jumped out as maybe a little bit more important than you thought? Well, I would say, um, I would say Dale Harris actually was one of my you just don't think of him from this era because of the dominance of Phil. But I think um, – And he's he's still not well-liked among Laker fans still, like to know, this day. You know, so I went down to Dallas and spent a lot of time with Dell, And uh, I met him at a, uh, at a country club. And Dell Harris's reputation or his coaching sort of period in, in, with the Lakers was hurt by a mere fact that he talks a lot. Yeah. He just talks a lot. He goes on and on and on. He's super smart. He's super nice. He has a lot of integrity. He's a really good guy. and he was not invited to Kobe's last game. And you could tell, or I could tell from talking to him, that really stung, that hurt. And what's interesting about Dale Harris that I think people overlook is he went out of his way Kobe's rookie year to protect him. Um, there was a lot of noise from a lot of people saying, this kid needs to play more. We need to get him in there. Dale Harris from the beginning was very adamant. He's not ready. This guy's not ready yet. He doesn't play NBA defense. He doesn't pass like an NBA player. His shot selection's not, he's not ready yet. We need to nurture him. And Jerry West even, Dale, you know, maybe we should give the kid more time. No, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And I just think he gets lost a little bit. He did not have an easy hand. Uh, Nick Van Exer was a pain in the ass back then. Eddie Jones was a confusing player. Eldon Campbell was under, like, it was not an easy hand of players to deal with. And I thought he was kind of masterful with it all. I really do. I also love Nick Van Exel. Like, I love that. It's really interesting. That Nick Van Exel is hilarious. Like, he is a great dude. Great. and ridiculously good player and it it hurt jerry west to get rid of nick van exel because in a lot of ways nick van exel was everything he wanted in player like nick i also van think exel, like for gms those are the guys that they hold on to like the guys that they found and unearthed like you yeah. know in the like it, nick van exel was a late round pick who they discovered like yeah well he was going to be he basically sabotaged his own draft workouts he, he yes. worked for seattle and seattle was really interested in him and he just didn't run hard during the workouts yeah he was like yeah i don't care and um but he was a tough guy to have around because he could get really moody and just harsh and did not Dell Harris and Nick Van Exel was not a good marriage. Not but at all. What I love about Nick Van Exel, he's an assistant coach. Now he's the most unlikely assistant coach in the history of the NBA. Um, he loves Dell Harris. He considers Dell Harris a legitimately good friend. And he just was really important that first year. He really was as kind of this guy as a third guy or really a second guy in that Shaq, Kobe, Nick Van Exel thing. He just, and he just has an edge to him that I love, like this tough edge to him. Now, the other guy who also, again, from that era, freaking Eddie Jones, 
the to me the the dumbest thing the Lakers did was the Eddie Jones for Glenn Rice trade. Yeah. There was always this myth this myth that Eddie Jones couldn't work with Kobe Bryant. And I actually talked to Eddie about it. He's like, that's preposterous. We actually played really well off each other. I just think Eddie Jones was a much better all-around player than Glenn Rice. And they went for a shooter. And then they found Glenn Rice couldn't really create his own shot. Yeah, no. And like one of my favorite details like in the book so far was not just like the Glenn Rice's like lack of a fit. It was Glenn Rice's wife calling Bill Plaschke apparently and like leading to about a 700 word column or something. And I'm assuming the LA Times, right? Like where uh, like she criticized. I think she said that I think she accused Phil of directly trying to sabotage him and uh, like setting him up because he wanted what was it? He like wanted to like establish Kobe more and prove that like Glenn Rice couldn't work so yeah. he was setting him up to fail in the nba finals like was that was, yes and my other thing with glenn rice is he um that that was, makes the aisha curry like the nba is rigged tweet look oh, yeah. like look like just an innocuous you know like promotion of her book or something like that i like, agree i agree um rice shows up they make the trade and dave wool is an assistant coach with the lakers and he used to be with the heat and he's telling kerr rambis who's the intern coach at the time he's like yeah you're gonna love glenn rice he's awesome blah 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 Glenn Rice shows up and Karamba sees him for the first time and he says to Wolf, he goes, God, he's fat. And Wolf's like, what do you mean? And he's like, you can see the rolls in his neck. And Rice shows up and he's he's immediately taking these shots. And uh, Rambus was telling me you could see as soon as he was releasing the ball, the shots are off. And he was just confused by what he got because they thought they were getting gled- you know, dead eye shooting Glenn Rice. And he ended up being okay with the Lakers, but it was never really a good fit. This is why he's in- yeah, I mean, like again, like that, you know, they won three titles, and you know, I think he ended up being okay. But you're right, like I, th- I think there's a chance that maybe Eddie Jones like could have worked, and like he, he was somebody that I didn't honestly know a lot about. That was like I probably started following the team around like 2000, like, and it's not a bandwagon thing. That's just when I was old enough to start liking basketball. Um, yeah. and but like I didn't really know much about those years, and so for me, that was almost one of the most interesting parts of the book was like the kind of like not aborted, but like kind of failure of a magic comeback that nobody. Ever really talks about we just oh, like yeah. they're like yeah he he retired he came back he played in the all-star game and then was never seen on a basketball court again um Wait, the magic comeback the magic comeback was one of my favorite parts of reporting on this book because it was really preposterous like they had it was almost like i said to someone before it was almost like um how you hear people now like my age being like oh millennials it was like magic comes back and where's kareem where's worthy you know he's playing with van axel and eddie jones and sedale three and he's basically and cedric ceballos and he's basically like the franchise. Oh, Chice. Yeah. It's like, I can't work with these guys, you know? And it was just a funny, it was a poor fit of 80 sensibilities with 90 selfishness. It did not work. No, it honestly reminded me a little bit of like Kobe's later years and like whether or not stars were yeah. just destined to do this because like it was kind of like how Kobe probably felt. I mean, he was less, uh, I think, uh, like free speaking about it in the press than Magic was uh, yeah. during those years. But like, you know, like Kobe, I think at some level, like didn't really understand. Like you, you hear the stories of him, like throwing all of his teammates Kobe shoes in the trash saying they don't deserve to wear them after like a loss and a rebuilding year. Like I think Magic, you know, if he, if his teammates were wearing his signature shoes at that point, probably would have considered a similar thing like he he just like it just the dynamic between him and the, the young guys being all like who's this old dude that's coming in and telling us what to do and like magic being like who are these kids that are not just listening to me i'm magic uh, like i'm magic effing johnson like and yeah. uh that that was like that was just again like one of many wild parts of this whole uh journey um was there anyone like if, like who was the hardest to get for this book um, like when you were trying to assemble all the interviews, was there anyone that you really wanted to and weren't able to? Well, Kobe. Yeah. 
Kobe was uh, yeah. I guess that's that. probably the obvious one, but yeah, I mean, I mean, it happens. You know, like I've, every book you write, there are people you don't get. And yeah, it happens. Kobe was disappointing, but I he had just come out with Mama Mentality. Um, you know, the book, as you know, it delves into the Eagle Colorado situation quite a yeah. bit. Um, I understand why he didn't talk. You know, it's yeah. a, it was a period of his life that he didn't sort of really talk about. And I, yeah. uh, so, but that was, that was a bummer. Yeah. I mean, like who was the hardest to get then outside, obviously outside oh. of Kobe, not being able to get him. Like who, like, were there any, like, you know, you had to like basically like track down a flight last minute, meet them somewhere at a Starbucks for 50, like any crazy, oh, like, yes. like trying to track somebody down. Maybe my best track down story ever for a book was um, J.R. Ryder. I, um, that I actually, that really lines up with uh, kind oh. of his rep in the book. So Ryder, Ryder lives in Arizona. I couldn't get a phone number for him, or at least one that worked. I, um, I have an address for him, though. I'm in Arizona. I decided, okay, I'm going to knock on J.R. Ryder's door. Um, I drive out. I get there a little early. It's 9.30 in the morning. Eh. It's not the first door I've ever knocked on, but I, I knock on the door, and a kid answers. He's like, can I help you? I'm like, hey, I'm looking for J.R. Ryder. Hold on. Woman comes to the door. Can I help you? I have a copy of my USFL book with me. I'm like, hey, my name's Jeff Perum, and I'm a writer. I'm trying to find J.R. Ryder. So I like, hold on one second. Close the door. I hear two people, an adult male, adult female, kind of arguing. J.R. Ryder comes to the door. And he's like, kind of puffs his chest out. And he's like, who are you? I'm like, hey, my name's Jeff Perum, and you know, I'm a writer. And he's like, wait, what? Bro, no, 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 bro, no, no. Are you? He's like, are you fucking kidding me? What, blah, blah, blah. And he opens the door and he comes out and I'm like, oh boy. And he's like, bro, man, that is so, that's not cool, man. That is not. And then he goes, who are you writing about? And I go, uh, <laughs> in the Shaq Kobe era, a book about the Shaq Kobe era Lakers. He's like, you wrote that USFL? You write that book about the USFL? He goes, that's Trump, right? Trump League? I go, yeah. He's like, all right, I'll talk to you. And he gave me, uh, we ended up doing it on the phone, but he gave me two hours of awesome. So I thought J.R. Ryder was going to kick my ass and end up being great. Yeah, so I was going to ask, in the book, I believe there are two separate instances where he threatens to have a reporter killed. Was there any pause for you in going and knocking on that guy's door? Had you not heard those stories yet? Like, I'm just wondering, like, was there any part of you that was worried about, like, this guy who, like, you know, now they're not really keeping track of his interactions with the media, just going up and, like, knocking on his door? So it's a weird thing, me and door knocking. I um, It's kind of like a really turbulent flight where you're like, oh, I don't know about this. I, there's something about, but at the same time, it's kind of thrilling in a weird way. I um, I like knocking on doors. I do. I've never backed away from knocking on the door. I, I feel like it's probably tough to say no to an interview at that point. Like, it's really easy in an email. If somebody's actually yeah. at your house, it's probably like, I mean, you, you're you saying the discussion between him and like, I think his wife I'm gathering, Uh, like, you know, she's just basically, she, this guy's outside, go talk to him. Like, it's terrifying at the same time. Yeah. Even, it is terrifying. Um. And I knew he could, he had those sort of tendencies, but um, I don't know. I just walked through it and I assume the odds are he's not going to shoot me or punch me or whatever. And he was and great. Hey, it worked out. So um, yeah, like it, I'm assuming didn't threaten to kill you once. So that's great. Like that's, oh. that's better than at least two reporters uh, over the course of his career can say. Um, out, outside of, uh, outside of knocking on J.R. Ryder's door, like were there any stories either in the process of making the book or in the process of reporting the book that just didn't fit that like you really liked, but weren't able to kind of get in there? Cause you know, with this stuff, like there's always, I, I'm assuming the, the book, it, the book's long, but I'm assuming there's probably double that length of like material that is left on the cutting, cutting room floor. 
Yeah, but it's not what you would think. Like if it's if there's a really good story and it's verifiable, I use it. The main thing, things that I leave out are maybe, maybe I'm really fascinated by Robert Ory's backstory, but I only have so much room. You know, yeah. or maybe I want to delve more into Nick Van Exel, but I only have so much room. But as far as like high octane stuff or really colorful stuff, I generally. If I can use it, I can use it. You know, I mean, I was, I mean, the, the, the book's chock full of it. So like, I would be kind of surprised if there was like very much of like that kind of explosive yeah. stuff, but like left on the cutting room floor, but you know, I got to ask, I got to see it. Like we're, we're just, we're trying to get people to clip this and like aggregate that part where, you know, you say, you know, you accuse Shaq of like some crime or something like that. Like who knows, um, you know, um, yeah, for you. Sorry, man. Uh, that, that's unfortunate, but you know, I gotta, I gotta go for it. I got like, we're, we're trying, we're trying to get listens here. Um, like, outside of that like so you know we've mentioned it a couple times the showtime book like that is actually going to be made into an hbo series i believe upcoming and uh like i don't know how showtime didn't go and like outbid on i know you probably can't say anything on that one but like i you know i I don't even know i have no idea yeah um like is there anything i don't know how involved you are with that directly but you know just since we're talking lakers and all this and past lakers stuff like i gotta ask like do you know like where that show is at like what like have you seen anything from it like because i know that they did a cast like i'm just curious like how involved are you you know all that stuff so i am uh i wouldn't say i'm super involved um i was my wife and i were giving cameos in the pilot as were my kids which was awesome oh that's really cool actually yeah, the pilot's great. I saw the. I'm pilot. guessing you play like number one Laker fan family. Like, uh, no, no, I am a reporter. And, oh, okay, that makes sense. And my wife was uh, the uh, secretary to Rod Thorne, the the general manager of the Bulls. Oh, okay. But it was cool. It was great, and um, everything was rolling, and everything was great. And then, of course, COVID happened, so they stopped filming. So I think they're trying to schedule to film again. In um, sorry, trying. I think they're trying to schedule to film again in. Um, in uh, January, hopefully, but COVID, who the hell knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just really excited for that one because like given the subject matter and the material already is incredible and like HBO kind of has this reputation for like even sometimes taking that stuff up a notch just with the caliber of acting, you can see it right in front of you on screen and like all of that stuff. Like I, I'm really looking forward to that one. And so I wanted to ask about it. Um, I mean, honestly, like that's all I got. Like, I really appreciate your time. Uh, the oh, book yeah. is incredible. Um, can you tell people where they can find you? Where is the best place for them to help you out by buying the book? Um, and then I think I saw you tweet yesterday that if people send you screen grabs of them pre-ordering, you're sending out stickers, I believe. So just like, you know, plug everything yeah. that you uh, that you want to plug. Sorry about that. Um, that's okay. Yes, sir. Um, very 2020. Um, JR Ryder's calling you back. He wants yeah, to talk. Yeah. Um, my website is jeffperlman.com. I'm on Twitter at Jeff Perlman. And I do, I've been doing this thing where, um, if you just send me a screenshot of your order, I have these, uh, you know, these Kobe stickers and book stickers and different stuff. And I have been raffling off a bunch of Laker t-shirts and, you know, just try to get in audience engagement and people can buy it wherever's comfortable for them. I, 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 am in no position to tell people where they should buy a book. Well, if they read it. Yes, I, I would I, I would definitely number one, I would recommend all of you buy it, read it. Like if you are a Lakers fan, like seriously, like I was probably laughing once at least every other page. Just like some of these young Kobe stories are just incredible. Like, and it's just so hit like it's almost to the point of like like he it almost feels like he's like like when you watch the Nike ads and you watch how he tried to present himself, like there were times where it felt like a character, but like from getting the behind the scenes stuff, like that's really just how he was. Like he was like you know, he was such an asshole 
sometimes. And it's just like, it's honestly hilarious to read about, like from a 17, 18, 19 year old kid that was just so sure of himself, just basically telling off these adults and, you know, wanting to go, go do his own thing. Like, you know, he, he, like his, like the young Kobe really, I think shines through in the book, like in a way that I don't know that we've seen him like presented as like kind of clearly and honestly before, where I think there's usually an attempt to kind of paper over it and smooth it out and whatever. And it's just like, no, like that's who he was. Like he was just difficult to be around and like he was a difficult teammate and they don't shy away from that. But I think that it's honestly like that's part of his journey and that's part of what made him who he was. So like if you appreciate the good part of it, like you have to remember that there were also like drawbacks of it. And like that's just kind of how he was. And I, also, I just want to say, I really mean this. Um, I don't think it takes away from who he was. And I no, really I mean, don't think so at all. Right. I think it is okay. We all, I, again, I started my career at the Nashville Tennessean. I was a little asshole punk who thought he was the greatest reporter ever. You know, like that's part of my journey is maturing and having people say to you, look, you can't be this way. You shouldn't be this way. You need to be this and that. And we all have that journey one way or another. Yeah. And I just, I really don't want people to feel like I am like trying to destroy Kobe or destroy his legacy or anything. I am a huge admirer of that guy in his career. It was just a portion of it. Yeah. And honestly, I mean, number one, you get into that in the forward, because obviously with everything that's happened, like you have to acknowledge that like, this is not a full portrait of his life and everything that happened to him uh, like afterwards. And, you know, you would like, obviously that's something that you realize anyway, but especially with him passing in such a tragic way, like, you know, you, I, I was glad that you got into it in the forward right up front, kind of given what was coming. But also like, I, I think the thing like, uh, there obviously there are going to be diehards who get mad at this who just don't want to hear like anything bad about Kobe but like number one I think it's part of the story of his journey and what made him the way that he was and as successful as he was and number two like we, we know from Kobe that like he was an obsessive storyteller by like the end of his like by the end of his life and the end of his career like I don't think that you know even if he didn't want to participate I think that he would have respected like telling the entire full story of how someone was because I think that that was the kind of like narratives that he tried to craft and weave and stuff like that like I just think that he respected the storytelling process. And like, I think that you can't tell the honest story of Kobe Bryant without the difficult younger years that were him kind of coming into his own and figuring things out. Like, you know, like you said, we all go through it. It's just not necessarily as on the public of a stage. Well said. I agree with that. I agree with everything you just said. All right. So again, like Jeff, I really appreciate you jumping on with me. Uh, th that is going to do it for this episode of the Silver Screen and Roll podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, uh, Spotify, Google Play, like anywhere podcasts are found. And uh, we will be back with uh, another episode for you guys tomorrow.